Hello and welcome to the program. This is another podcast for The Diplomat. My name is Luke Hunt and with me today is Carl Thayer, Emeritus Professor of the University of New South Wales School of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Australian Defence Force Academy. Carl has spent many decades at ANU, Australian National University, and is widely considered one of the uh, world's leading experts on Vietnam. Carl, welcome to the program. Thank you, Luke. It's um, been an interesting time. You've had the uh, US ASEAN Summit in Washington. The Indo-PAC strategy is uh, still, the framework is still evolving. How do you make uh, the weekend shenanigans among the eight of ASEAN leaders who uh, met with Biden and each other? Right. I guess one has to say that there's no one definite answer to this. In certain respects, it enhanced U.S.-ASEAN relations. The fact that they took place, the last meeting was in 2016 under Obama. It happened in Washington, D.C., where Obama had it in Sunnylands, California, and Trump uh, wanted it in Las Vegas, Nevada, to promote his business interest. But COVID intervened, so the second summit wasn't held. And the COVID uh, pandemic has interrupted relations all across the world, a face-to-face meeting. So what's important is that the the U.S. had this meeting. The ASEAN leaders came, as you indicate. President Duterte of the Philippines yet again hasn't shown up to any of these meetings, but he's now leaving office. Yep. And Miramar had an empty seat at the table. So that there there are only nine, uh, eight heads of government plus a foreign minister from the Philippines representing that that country. So they met with uh, President Biden and they ended up w- uh, issuing a two-page joint vision statement looking in the future. And what's key there is that this should, uh, it listed eight major areas of cooperation in economy, public health, science and technology, education. Uh, these are common themes of the relationship over time, America is a strategic partner with ASEAN. It has a plan of action that expires in 2025. So this embellishes on it. But when you're making these judgments, uh, President Biden offered 150 million US dollars to support some of these initiatives. Whereas the media pointed out immediately, you just given 40 billion to the uh, to Ukraine. And last year, China announced a 1.5 billion three year package uh, to ASEAN. So it doesn't look like that money goes far enough. But there are uh, some caveats that in several of these areas, it was uh, the U.S. tied it to mobilizing private sector investment in Vietnam in the, in the in some areas, $2 billion, others $3 billion. So up to $5 billion could be mobilized. We have no time frame for that. Right. And uh, although the U.S.'s uh, key point is to, to gather allies and partners to oppose China, and to really isolate Russia, there was nobody. There were no takers. In fact, that in the final joint vision statement, typical of ASEAN, they don't mention the bad boys. So there's no mention of China or Russia. It's just the parties. Uh, they did stress the importance of territorial integrity and national sovereignty. And some commentators in Washington said, "Oh, that that really pushed ASEAN forward." And it's true in one sense that ASEAN's first statement mentioned all that, but didn't didn't mention Ukraine, and in the joint vision vision statement, it did mention mention Ukraine as if uh, the glacier had moved uh, a few centimeters, I think. Uh, An imaginative proposal and one that, again, has this bittersweet uh, plus and minus uh, 
connotation is to offer that the U.S. would send one of its most modern Coast Guard cutters to the region to be a training ship, to have multilateral crews from a variety of countries, and to help um, capacity building and then attack IUUF, uh, un, illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing. But then it's, I mean, that's one cutter for not just the South China Sea, but the Indo-Pacific and Oceania. So mm. that's not going to make a terrific impact, impact although it's a start. Yep. And almost all media commentary focused on this illegal fishing is against China, whereas Vietnam is one of the biggest violators along with China and Thailand and other countries. So to end uh, illegal fishing uh, yeah. is attacking several countries on, on multiple fronts. And the most effective system that I've noticed is the EU which when they discover that they're importing illegal fishing, issue a yellow card. And if over a certain period of time that the EU sets, this happened with the Philippines, they issue a red card and they stop all imports until, until the country takes determined steps and the Philippines got out of it by, by taking steps. So here we have a whole range of issues, but when you examine them closely, uh, what impact and, and how do they contribute to a free and open Indo-Pacific, that's the U.S. strategy. That's the ends. The ways and means, though, don't seem to quite fit. They're all over the place. It's like a shotgun. And one of, the, one of those pellets is going to hit and, and enhance ASEAN's capacity. But nothing is down with deadlines and firm commitments. Right. There's talk of trying to raise the partnership level to a comprehensive strategic partnership. Similar to that with the US enjoys with, uh, I think, China and Australia, which I'm wondering, these strategic partnerships, how can you raise it on a multilateral level? I.e., if you do this with ASEAN, you're going to have countries in there such as Myanmar. And Myanmar was, uh, there was a lot of talk about Myanmar on the first day of the summit. Uh, didn't seem to really go anywhere. The Malaysians were quite upset with what's happening and the failure to push the five-point peace process forward. But is this actually doable or is it more pie in the sky? Again, uh, Australia and China were raised to comprehensive strategic partners, the first two countries, virtually simultaneously last year, October. And the US is a strategic partner. And so... Again, among commentators, some say it's purely symbolic, but it does show, to a certain extent, ASEAN's balance, its outlook on the Indo-Pacific to be in the middle. So U.S. and China theoretically are accorded the same status uh, come November. And how do you engage multilaterally? Well, that's continually the perennial problem. It's 10 members of ASEAN theoretically uh, operating as a group, and a major power responding. Now, in the case of COVID pandemic, it was very easy for the U.S. because Vietnam was chair and it channeled it through ASEAN and ASEAN institutions to affect all the countries. So Miramar and other countries weren't excluded from it, but that was before the military coup. But bottom line with the U.S. is uh, when all these uh, coups happen, not to disadvantage the people, they have to be uh, taken into account. Uh, mm -hmm. The five-point plan was mentioned. The Malaysians met with the national unity government, uh, the, the opposition, and the U.S. Met, Secretary Blinken met with Hun Sen, met with uh, 
Prak Sakong, uh, the special envoy now for, for ASEAN to, to Miramar. Yep. And you get another boilerplate that you see in every ASEAN declaration to, you know, have a ceasefire, uh, you know, receive the envoy, let him meet everybody, free all political prisoners, including foreigners, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the junta doesn't move. Right. Amid all this, your expertise of uh, uh, your expertise uh, region-wide and beyond that, but your focus has always been, for a long time, uh, Vietnam. How do you see Vietnam shaping up in this equation, which is changing rapidly, the Indo-Pacific strategy? We've had this chat before. Vietnam is a, kind of a maritime state and a mainland state. Its exports, they'd prefer them to go to the United States. It's doing rather well there, but at the same time, its government is incompatible with uh, Joe Biden's view of the world and the sort of uh, alignment he'd like to see with democratic uh, sovereign nations. Yeah, well, Vietnam had a leadership change in January of last year, mm -hmm. uh, and they're elected for a five-year period. They set very ambitious uh, targets economically to recover from COVID and then move Vietnam from its low income to middle-income middle status, I should say, to higher up to be a, a modern industrialized country by 2030. So, and that re requires a growth rate in excess of 6% to sustain it for over that period. The United States is Vietnam's largest export market, and I think Vietnam ranks ninth amongst U.S. trading partners. It, there was a, a meeting with the U.S. trade representative and they're looking at a harmonious balance of trade to overcome uh, the Trump era focus on, on trade deficits uh, that Vietnam has to meet. Vietnam is looking very much towards technology, innovation, e-commerce, digital, clean energy, all the new modern technologies to try to meet its uh, commitments under climate change, which the U.S. endorses and, and wants to support. So Prime Minister Chin was one of the few leaders to actually meet bilaterally with President Biden. Biden didn't meet all the eight representatives, uh, heads of government, mm -hmm. one, one on one. And Prime Minister Chin gave a major address to the Center for Strategic International Studies. He met with the American uh, business community. Uh, he met with Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen and on you go. So he had first class access all across the board. But this was all crammed into a very short period of time. And right. a bit of the gloss has been taken off by the fact that there was a video being made of the meeting that he was going to have with Secretary Biden. And the microphone was still hot before this began. And it's up on Twitter. And it mm -hmm. needs to be verified because the video has been taken down and is all in Vietnamese. Right. So it's a Vietnamese American who's writing about this, about comments that the uh, Vietnamese were making prior to going in this meeting, and including one that uh, Vietnam was not afraid to deal with anybody and they had put Biden in the corner. Uh, and these scenes of big call. You know, this, goes against, <laughs> this goes against the promotion of, of trust <laughs> between the two countries, which right. was a key line in, in the prime minister's talk. What, what sort of muscle do the Vietnamese have that would warrant such a statement? Well, that the, the U.S. has already shown its hand. I mean, this is the bargaining culture. And yep. <laughs> Vietnam, America's shown its interest in wanting to purchase Vietnamese <laughs> goods 
an influence uh, and bring them on side. So the Vietnamese have some bargaining room uh, back in that respect. They play a strong mm. role in ASEAN's consensus, and the U.S. needs uh, to keep Vietnam on side in doing that. American businesses want to invest in Vietnam. It's profitable for them. And your question's very good. When I looked, and I've gone through hundreds of pages now of media and other reporting that I've that have come my way on all of this, it's all, and I hate to say it, that Vietnam seems to be a security taker. Give me, give me, give me. Right. And you, you, what do you get back? Well, now we need to develop. And the starting point is always to heal the wounds of war. I was going Agent. to go there on that, but I'll, I'll save that for five minutes. Sorry, go ahead. Right. Well, I'll, well, yeah. I'll wait. But in other words, that the, the, they start with that, and then yeah. They, they list areas of cooperation, and then we would really like you to invest in green energy, more education and training, more this, more that. Oh, we'd like to teach you how to get up a stock market, uh, et cetera. And if the U.S. is expecting support by Vietnam uh, against China, in a recent background brief in trying to answer that question, I just said, watch this space and see how quickly Vietnam and China's leaders get together after this, because that's been a historical pattern. Interesting. They, you go yeah. to Washington, you do your deal. Now you, you've got China interested. Then you you send your party leader to China and uh, kind of balance things out. So in other words, but this leaked tweet, if it's accurate, is how difficult it is then to get Vietnam to be anything other than independent and not really side. What is it, what is it delivering to counter China? Yep. And that would be, well, by building up its own strength. But it's dependent on Russian weapons to do that. It's not criticizing Russia over Ukraine and won't join in that. And what it can give to America, yeah, is uh, American companies turning a profit. But the U.S. considers Vietnam a non-market economy. And that, that's too sensitive to mention in public. I mean, it's a fact, but whether Vietnam is taking steps to have that rescinded, which would then mean their goods to the large to the largest mar export market the us would come in even cheaper because their tariffs imposed on not on non-market economies uh-huh right going back to uh you mentioned the war have we reached a point where america's involvement in vietnam in the 1960s and 70s is that still a big factor at the negotiating table is that a factor in their thinking are we trying to make amends or is it more a case of business as usual well vietnam quickly adopted let bygones be bygones as a, as a statement and moved on and you know from the paris peace agreement since 1973 to 1995 that's how long it took to normalize but to me the way i look at it is once upon a time the u.s and vietnam negotiated a paris peace agreement to end the war and restore the peace and in that, Vietnam agreed to provide a full accounting of American prisoners and missing in action. Mm -hmm. And for its part, the U.S. agreed to heal the wounds of war. And President Nixon wrote two private letters to Vietnam, or two letters, uh, promising billions in each of aid. Well, uh, the president can't authorize it, only Congress can. And the Watergate scandal ended that. And then the U.S. got out of Vietnam and for many years initially saw reparations from American companies that lost money. And Vietnam kept saying, hey, wait a minute, we won the war. What about your commitment to heal the wounds of war? 
Yes. There's lots of stage in orange and dioxin. There's unexploded ordnance, bombs, mines. Right. Uh, and there are Vietnamese uh, people that have been affected by Agent Orange and they pass that on through children that are deformed. Uh, we need you. And so that still features. And, it, it, and that's, even, that's even though, I mean, the, the deal was there'd be North Vietnam and South Vietnam and it was uh, during the Watergate scandal, correct me if I'm wrong, that the North Vietnamese basically said, bugger it, let's uh, put our toes in the water, cross the border into South Vietnam, see how we go. They did that. The South collapsed and uh, South Vietnam was swallowed up. Yeah, it was as an offensive of 55 days from March 75, right. uh, I mean, from when it was launched. Yeah, uh, but the point is that, yeah, in the U.S., the Paris Peace Agreement was signed in 73, that they set so many days for the U.S. to withdraw its troops. They did, and the U.S. withdrew. And then the Vietnamese in January 74 attacked the provincial capital to see what would happen. And when American airplanes didn't come back in, they drew the conclusion that they could then press onwards. But the Saigon government didn't have clean hands either. There was, the ceasefire broke down almost immediately at local level. Yeah, but so in the end, that the communists launched a full out military offensive, uh, Central Highlands, mm -hmm. uh, the Arvin Army of the Republic of Vietnam collapsed, retreated, uh, and, and, and they just, communists drove on uh, Ho Chi Minh City. The U.S. had already repudiated its obligations underneath it. But in other words, but when they started again, uh, and under the Carter administration, and Richard Holbrook uh, was the key interlocutor, in October 78, they came very close to establishing diplomatic relations and locating the site of the American embassy. But Congress got with it and passed legislation making it illegal to pay reparations uh, or any money uh, to Vietnam. Uh, so, yeah, we, we're getting into a complicated period, but I think from the Vietnamese side, they're still smarting that the U.S. owes us. And maybe the heat has gone out, but it nonetheless keeps surfacing. And you see it in, in the Prime Minister Pham Minh Ching's speeches uh, and, and talks in America about that. And then, of course, America has put money in to clear the hot spots at Da Nang Air Base in Benoit in the south. But that keeps coming up, and it's a, that's the starting point. Test American reaction to it, get them to agree, and then we can move on in other areas. How important is uh, Vietnam? Uh, this is going to sound like a silly question, actually, but given the port facilities and what they're developing, uh, throwing it, throwing open uh, Cameron Bay to the world's militaries, you know, the idea that India can sail its military vessels uh, through the South China Sea uh, and into a Vietnamese port, one would assume the Chinese wouldn't like that very much. How important is Vietnam as a maritime state now? And where is that positioning it in, inside Asian and and the role it's playing at a multilateral <laughs> level. It, it kind of it seems to me that it, it, it's just in this awkward position, and uh, perhaps with the new prime minister there might be some clarity on that. But it, it always seems to be a little foggy. Right. Well, let's say we just take a geographic appreciation without getting into the politics or the history. Mm -hmm. uh, the South China Sea is semi-enclosed. China has militarized islands. It's building up its naval power. It wants to expel the U.S. Current U.S. strategy is being uh, developed by the Marines 
to a lesser extent, the army, would love to be located on the literal sides in the Philippines and Vietnam. Locate long-range fire, as they call them, missiles, with accuracy. Develop marine strike forces that are small and nimble that carry the equivalent of javelins right. <laughs> uh, yes. uh, against China. And therefore, Vietnam and the deep water port at Camran Bay, well, that served the Russian Imperial Navy, it served the U.S., it's one of the best ports going, Subic uh, in the Philippines. So as a real estate, it's highly valuable. But the point is that now when we add the politics, it's not going to happen. Camran Bay that you referred to is two parts. There's the military base right. side. And only Russia has a permanent presence there because they service the, the Vietnamese submarines. The other is Kamran Bay International Port, which is down the road, and it's a forlorn, almost deserted place. But Vietnam has had a long-standing policy that every country in the world, without exception, is allowed one official visit a year by naval forces. The exceptions can be if the head of state is coming on a vessel, like the King of Thailand if he came on the aircraft carrier, mm -hmm. uh, or, or something like that. or they don't count the USNS Mercy, the hospital ship. So you can go to Da Nang, the U.S. comes annually, and then they sail down to Kamran International Port. And Vietnam has promoted it, but they haven't yet built it up like what Subic Bay was years ago with a Filipino workforce that could service and repair warships and everything else. Yeah, it's like an R&R &R dockage, and it's more symbolic. And so when a you, you get American reporting, their ships have visited. A couple of weeks later, the Chinese arrive and, and, and make a visit. So Vietnam plays that off. And yes, it gets Japanese, it gets Indians, you know, anybody else that will come. The Russians are the only country that only have to give notification that they want to dock at the military port. And mm -hmm. they just sail right through. So Vietnam has a four nose foreign policy, the defense policy, no military bases, no alliances, no ganging up with one country against another. And then the fourth note added in late 2019 was uh, no threat or use of force first time. Vietnam will defend itself, but, but not use force first. Right. Okay. How close are Vietnam and Russia. Uh, there's a lot been said about it over the years, but as other analysts have pointed out to me, that um, they've rarely, if at all, staged joint military exercises, for example. Uh, the reliance is obviously what they need from each other. is It's dissipated since the um, end of the Cold War. Uh, how close are they now and how big, are, how big a factor is that within ASEAN and multilateralism? Yeah, one, just first definitional thing that yep. in English military exercise covers a wide range, but Vietnam has two distinct terms. In military exercise, to impart combat fighting skills aimed at another country, they don't do. So when you say they don't have military exercises with, with Russia, you're absolutely correct. And the other is a training exercise, and they'll do training exercises. But that's... Uh, that's the way of fitting around. Well, one, I mean, historically, Ho Chi Minh was in the French Communist Party. They broke, uh, sorry, the French Socialists broke off into the French. He went off, joined the Common Turn. He went to Hanoi. I mean, Moscow, he served the Common Turn. Uh, 
China helped uh, with its revolution, but uh, in the 1950s, Russia, when the Korean War broke out, uh, and also when the war in Vietnam picked up, China aided Vietnam, but increasing the Soviet Union got involved. The longer the war went on and when Moscow and Beijing split throughout that war, when it ended, China ultimately ended up pulling out its advisors and pulling out its aid programs, and Vietnam sided with the Soviet Union and indeed signed a treaty of friendship and cooperation as a cover, uh, as an insurance policy, so that when Vietnam intervened in Cambodia in late 1978, it had that Russian support and Russian military supplies and equipment to help serve the Vietnamese military. Then after Cambodia, the question was that the Soviet, right now the Russians, are squatting in Kamran Bay, and (laughs) Vietnam wanted them to pay rent. And the Russians said, oh, you owe the Soviet Union billions of dollars in debts, and we want you to repay. So they haggled over that, and ultimately uh, the Russian Navy left. Uh, But nonetheless, they they redid their relationship. So what's important? If we just forget the last five years, but stop five years ago, and then add up all the money that's poured into Vietnam, easily the Soviet Union was number one provider of military supplies and equipment to Vietnam, 85 or more percent. Big, big ticket items from Gephardt class frigates, submarines, modern Sukhoi aircraft, uh, coastal, uh, uh, coastal missiles, uh, defense systems, etc. The whole legacy and, and training and technology is Russian. When the submarines go at sea, the crew speaks in Russian because of the technical language. So it's a very close defense relation. Then there's a joint venture, Vietsov Petra, and it's a money earner. And it not just develops mines for oil or exploits the oil off Vietnam's coast, but it wins international contracts and it wins contracts in Russia, in Siberia. You have Russian trained Vietnamese working for that company. And that's a money winner for both. Now, these are small potatoes in a sense that you don't even get Russia in the top 10 trading partners with Vietnam or investors. It doesn't carry that heft. But it's a, it's a country that has reliably supported Vietnam, its first strategic partner, a permanent member of the UN Security Council, and a counterweight to China up until Ukraine. So right. that, that's, and you have tens of thousands of Vietnamese trained there who have an attachment and a gratitude for what they learned at educational institutions. Uh, that are there. Okay, that's just being shown by those who are analyzing the social media and all the pro-Russian net groups that yeah. are supporting Russian intervention in Ukraine. Well, that's interesting. I think you've mentioned before, too, that while it might be small potatoes, but if, say, the Americans, and I'm sure they would, like to sell military hardware to a point to the Vietnamese, because everything has been so customised towards Russia and the Russian language and the military personnel, as you, as you just mentioned, use Russian to uh, run the submarines, run the ships and everything else that sails along with it, that it's almost an impossible ask to get in there and change that. You can, certainly can't do it overnight. And that sort of locks Russia in there for at least a time being. Well, it locks Russia in, but this is a huge moment of vulnerability for Vietnam because uh, around just after Crimea, but particularly around after 2000, 2018, Vietnam's 
procurements from Russia peaked and just under 800 million and they dwindled down to 72 million at the end of this period. In some years, there were no purchases whatsoever. And we can make it what we will, whether it's a reaction to the threat of US sanctions or Vietnam's economy had slowed down or equally plausible uh, is that the, the Vietnam had been warned, uh, particularly by a retired Australian admiral, uh, not warned, but advised, wait till you guys find out what the maintenance costs are for submarines and everything you've bought. <laughs> and so a lot, an awful lot of the defense budget, as every year goes by, uh, is being consumed to keep the submarines, the frigates, uh, fast attack missile craft and aircraft mm -hmm. uh, still operational and ready. So that's showing you, you know, that, that weakness in the relationship. But the U.S. and the West are making Russia the pariah, or isolating it, or in pressure. Now, India still buys. So there's some cover for Vietnam. And you're absolutely right. When Secretary James Mattis was under Trump heading the Pentagon, he wanted uh, exemptions for India, Indonesia, and Vietnam because he knew you just can't, like an addict, tell them to stop and have it happen next week. It's a, it's a long process of rehabilitation in a sense and weaning them away, mm -hmm. says a Vietnamese scholar in Singapore. But then the question then becomes the cost and the technology and the massive training in English that would have to take place to get people that can hop into a fifth generation American fighter if they were going to sell them. Indonesia may be on the line for some hornets so that Vietnam might, might clarify. But then it would be a mix and match situation until enough American planes were purchased to totally phase out the Russian ones uh, that exist. So there's no, there's no easy answer. Now, the vulnerability yeah. uh, is that Russia, uh, that sales and procurements could attract sanctions. Two, that the Russian expenditure on the war in Ukraine means it can no longer supply them, or that Russia becomes more dependent on China, and therefore China could put pressure on Russia not to sell Vietnam weapons that are obviously being used to prepare Vietnam to defend itself right. against the northern neighbor. Yeah, it's a hell of an equation. On a final question, we've got a new generation of leaders popping up in Vietnam. If that gaffe proves to be correct, they're certainly making themselves heard in the corridors of power around the world. How do you see this generation of leaders taking Vietnam over the next three, four, five years? It's looking to be a critical time. Well, I'm going to be disappointing and say I don't, because Vietnam is a very hierarchical, sclerotic political system. And the top leadership in the political bureau, which was elected last January for a five-year term, 18 members, there would only be about six who are under the age of 65 and eligible to continue in office and have served one term on the Politburo. At the moment, it's eight that have already done that and 10 that haven't. So by the next party Congress, the vast majority are going to be 65 or older. So you'd need new blood coming in in a big way. So between now and mm. January 2026, the youngest member of the Politburo is 52. And he's the only person, everybody else in the 60s. And they also privilege people born in the northern provinces for key, for key party positions uh, over the south. Uh, that's not an absolute rule, but it is a restriction. Mm -hmm. So 
between now and then, what is the effect of younger people? And that, that goes back to the Central Committee, where they have quotas for people under 50, 50 to 60 and above 60. So they have a, it's like a, if you'll see it as a escalator at a, a, a supermarket. So many, every five years, a cadre group gets off that's both eligible for jobs and one the group and it has to be retired and the next group comes up. So, <laughs> I know, so I know that feeling. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but in other words, the answer is it's up, it's up to these people on the Central Committee Yep. And before the last party Congress, the Central Committee overturned the Secretary General's uh, preferred candidate for party leadership and the compromise was the party leader stayed for a three term. That's not going to happen. And I think the big turnover is going to come at the next party Congress and it's going to come from within that Central Committee. And that Central Committee now is really tasked with the economic issues and the priorities, I say, to make Vietnam an advanced industrial country of reasonably good income by 2030. So that, that group there uh, are going to be in, in, not involved so much in politics, but in economic development and technological development in Vietnam. Okay. Carl Thayer, always enlightening. And thank you very much for your thoughts. Terrific chat. Oh, thank you, Luke.